Hey there, friends. Jay Revel here. Welcome to another episode of Mid-Am Crisis. Always great to have you listening in. I think you are going to really enjoy uh, today's conversation. I've got my friend Laz Versalis on the show today. Laz uh, is known for uh, stirring up a ruckus over on No Laying Up's uh, Refuge message board, as well as uh, just being a wonderful presence in golf Twitter. Uh, he's also someone who has really made a name for himself writing about the game uh, in a lot of different ways. He's uh, been featured in the Golfer's Journal, Golf.com, Deadspin, uh, among other publications. I've gotten a chance to know Laz through Twitter over the last year or so. Uh, I think we've got a little bit of a mutual admiration society, uh, just someone who uh, our golfing sensibilities seem to line up well. Uh, he's a great persona, someone who I think is wonderful for the game, and I always enjoy uh, hearing his takes, reading what he has to say about the game, and really just getting to know him. Uh, even though we've never met in person, I feel like this conversation uh, uh, felt like uh, two old pals catching up over the phone. Uh, I'm hoping that we're going to get a chance to meet in person soon. Uh, I know he's making his way over to the Sunshine State uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and I think this conversation will be a great precursor for that. So uh, I'm so glad that you're listening. Again, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I hope you'll bear through uh, the first 10 minutes or so. There's a little bit of a glitch uh, on the recording to where uh, you'll hear some of my voice uh, lagging just a touch. The sound quality is fine, but it lags a little bit through the first 10 minutes. But after that, uh, it cleans itself up uh, and is really nice listening all the way through. Uh, again, thanks for listening. Can't tell you how much I appreciate you tuning into these shows each week. We're going to have a lot more of these to come. Uh, if you're enjoying it, I hope you'll subscribe and leave us a little review uh, on your favorite listening device. Uh, and without further ado, uh, here's the latest episode of Mid-Am Crisis with Laz. I think you're going to like the show. Thanks again, folks. Jay, how are you? Lass. Excellent. I'm good, buddy. It's an excellent how are you day doing? here, and I'm really excited to talk to you, so it's going to be fun. Yeah, we'll have a little fun, see where, uh, see where the conversation takes us. Um, you know, I, I feel like, um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, a, a geographic expert, but where you are and where I'm at has got to be pretty close to about the same parallel. Although I think, uh, you know, the greater Malibu area is probably a little better, uh, yeah, known for I, its weather you know, than Tallahassee Southern Santa is. Monica. And it is, I love Malibu, but it's a little tricky this time of year. Cause you're kind of get you know, there's only kind of one way in and one way out. And, um, we're just shy of quarter zip season here, which is my favorite time of the year. It, you know, I used to tell people that uh, I'm just a I'm just a winter weather kind of guy. My, that's my body type. Uh, I've got that extra kind of built in extra layer or two, and uh, nothing covers up go. all my yeah. imperfections. No, it's, it's like the best like, morning uh, uniform you can ask for. You know, so I just love it. Yeah, tremendous. I was. Uh, we get this little twinkle in our eye around here, you know, this time of year because you get up in the morning to go walk the dog and you just get that little touch of crispiness and you go, Oh man, we're in for a good stretch. And, you know, Tallahassee's, I mean, it's a veritable hell during the middle of the summer. I mean, it, it's just, it's completely I, almost I, I, unbearable. Listen, 
I know, um, I know and... Florida summers a little bit. Uh, I kind of spent a lot of time there growing up. I had relatives there, so um, it's no joke. Um, yeah, yeah, down south, Miami. I mean, it's just, it's just you can't escape. There's no even when you go inside, you can't escape the heat. It's just, it's unbearable. But, but we do get that like nine months of the year that starts about right now and goes all the way through. You know, about the first horribly of May. uneducated question here, but do you magical. get do you get frost delays in Tallahassee? We will get um, maybe a couple. Yeah, we'll get we we, will, we definitely get down uh, a few times a year into temperatures that start with a two, uh, but but it's very rare. I mean, it, it's 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 less than five, maybe you know more than two, right? I mean. Um, I, the, the, the day my daughter was born a couple of years ago was one of the coldest days I can ever remember. It, and it was, I still got the front page of the newspaper from that day. Like, cause the West God fountain at FSU sure, had yeah. you know, frozen over. That's kind of the measuring stick, right? If the fountain freezes, you know, um, but we'll get, you know, we'll get a few of them, but, but the good news is, is, you know, they don't last long, you know, where you, you know, where you're up North, um, you know, it might take you half a day to kind of get through the, the frost uh, to bake off, but here, you know, once the sun comes up, it yeah, it usually warms it's, up um, pretty quick. You know, mornings are the best. I have to say, especially as golfers, you know, I, I really enjoy mornings and I enjoy the long shadows of the evening as well. But um, man, I, I loved a good frost delay, especially when I worked in the business. It was always kind of a fun thing. How long were you? I was folding and slinging shirts in the process. Uh, from let's see here, so 2001, and then I left the business in 2008, so a little over seven years. Um, at first, in kind of the greater Minneapolis area, and then in the um, the mecca, as we called it, the Palm Springs Valley. Uh, I came down here in 2005, and so I've been in California ever since then. What uh, what triggered the move from Minnesota to California? Yeah, I was seeking, um, you know, more permanent weather. I suppose. Well, no, I was actually kind of approached by a, um, a mentor friend who John Miller, not Johnny Miller, but John Miller, um, and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm going to go run this club in California, uh -huh. and there's yeah. a guy he's the head pro, but he's he's moving to Hawaii." Um, next year. So if you come up and you know everything goes well, that could be a nice, um, could be a good landing spot. So I was, I remember I talked to my dad about it, Jay. And before I could kind of get the full sentence out, he was like, go, just go. Like, you know, you've lived in Minneapolis your whole life. It's wonder It's a great place, but make the move now. So um, it was kind of tough. I was coming out of, I had been dating this woman for like three years and, um, had grown pretty close with her. She had a son mm -hmm. and had grown pretty close with him, but n increasingly further away from her emotionally. So it was a tough spot, but, um, I jumped to mm, on the opportunity and, and, um, it was wonderful. It was really a great club and the desert is is um you know you know it from watching the dinah shore or the bob hope and 
um, it all looks perfectly manicured and just intentional. And, and it is, you know, it's a really strange place. Um, and I had lived in, uh, I was living in Northeast Minneapolis, which is kind of a funky up and coming neighborhood in a lot of ways and had moved to, you know, the most prefabricated, you know, housing crisis, right market and ever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> like cookie cutter homes, the epicenter big ones. And, you know, it was, yeah. it was quite a departure. Uh, well, you know, the funny thing big is culture that shock there. you get, um, a lot of people from Minneapolis that, you know, I look at, I look at, um, you know, the snowbird golf or retirement golf. And I think you can, you can kind of define it by the Mississippi river. So, Anyone, anyone east of the Mississippi is very likely <laughs> going to go to, say, Hilton Head or Naples, Florida or Daytona Beach or Port St. Lucie or Palm Beach. And anyone west is either going to go to Scottsdale or Palm Springs, right? So um, we, had a l- we had a lot of Minnesotans yeah, um, in that area. So. It, it it wasn't that difficult. Like the thick Minnesota heavy vowel accent was at every, you know, if I was going to go to Denny's, like there'd be people sitting at the counter with me. Um, you know, every Walgreens yeah. looks exactly <laughs> the same, whether you're in, you know, Palm Desert or Princeton, Minnesota. Yeah. It's the same Walgreens. So culture shock, absolutely not. Um, culture deficiency, tremendous levels of that you know like (laughs) yeah it's just nuts i can i can buy that all day well that's i mean you know florida's got so many places that fit that bill i mean you just they're built for people who almost aren't from anywhere anymore by the time they get here you know and um and it just they're just kind of devoid of any character and history and charm and any, you know, they're just, they're just a, it's a manufactured place. Now, you know, I, one of the things that I, you know, my, in my North Florida peeps, you know, it's just, it's kind of a different world. Um, there's, it's just it's almost like the Florida that most people forgot. Um, but it's starting to change. And we, we, we noticed that, you know, cause you, you know, you get people who we get kind of the, the halfway rebounders, like, you know, people will go, they'll move down to some obscure, you know, um, uh, place in in South Florida uh, that that again could be anywhere USA, but just has really good weather most of the time, and um, I think they get worn out on it. They they want something a little bit more, but they're not ready to go move back up, you know, to where they came from. So they end up settling yeah, in yeah, you know, totally, North Florida where totally. there's a, a few more you know, I, I always, oak trees. You know? I always have <laughs> so, kind of a Florida rule. Well, um, well, so my parents. And, you know, I had a lot, I have and have, I guess, a lot of relatives like in Dade County, kind of like the next generation starts to creep up into Broward. Mm-hmm. And now um, as people get to kind of like retirement age, like, um, <clears throat> so we were looking at like places for my mom in Stewart, Florida, like last week. Right. So, so we know that coast a little bit, but I also know the mm-hmm. Naples area mm-hmm. yeah. and, um, yeah, I kind of love it there, and I think one of the tricks to the trade when you're going to travel in Florida 
is to never neglect the strip malls because like, for example, if you're going to have, let's say you're in Miramar, Florida, right? <laughs> and like, there's a lot of Brazilian people there. So you might go to like Fogo uh-huh. de Chao or whatever that Brazilian steakhouse is called and feel like you're going to have this authentic Brazilian experience. But really, uh-huh. you're way better off going to like, you know, De Silva's dinner spot in a strip mall run by like the couple that just moved here from uh-huh. Sao Paulo yeah. or whatever, right? So, and it might be Indian food, it might be Brazilian. I am all for strip mall food. And like, I'm telling you, like when, I think it goes for any place, but if you want authentic food, like you're going to very likely have a great experience at a smaller square footage place in a strip mall where, you know, these people that have just come to this country from wherever they're from and they want to serve their cuisine, they're going to be able to afford a place in a strip mall much more likely than a standalone restaurant. And you'll, you'll win there far more often than not. That is a wonderful take. We we've got this, I call it like international plaza because there's a strip mall here in Tallahassee and it's nothing but like, you know, just these, these little small mom and pop international cuisine places, you know, and again, it's this, you know, very, um, yeah, it's not run down or anything. It's just, it's just kind of a run of the mill, basic, someone put up a strip mall so people could, you know, find a, you know, affordable uh, lease rate. And it's, yeah. I mean, you, you can go, you could go pop around from one spot to the next in there and you're just going to get there. My favorite Cuban place in there. It's called Habana's Bardwalk. It's just phenomenal. Um, go there all the time. Yeah, it's just yeah, but that's a great day. Yeah, I mean you you, you can find the, the diamonds in the rough uh, up and down Florida Strip Mall avenues. There's plenty of them. That's um, it's funny that you mentioned Cuban food because um, I don't know if you know this. My parents, we are both like descendants of Havana. Like my parents are both from yeah. Havana, Cuba. <laughs> You're from a little different Havana. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just slightly, just slightly. They literally, I, they sell T-shirts in uh, uh, Havana, Florida that say, uh, you know, Havana, and then underneath in parentheses it says Florida, not Cuba. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's a funny story. So Havana, Florida was um, this just you know, weird how little places like this develop reputations for things. But back, um, you know, for the majority of the 20th century, probably up until about the 1970s, uh, they grew shade tobacco there and they exported um, that kind of tobacco all over the world for cigar wrappers. Um, and uh, the, um, you know, the, when they first founded the town, uh, they had these, these people that, you know, figured out that uh, the soil that we have up there and the climate that we have was perfect for growing this stuff. And uh, they named it after Havana, Cuba, uh, because they had they were in business down there. So just you know, craziest thing. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, you talked about you know earlier, you know, living you know in Minnesota, then moving to California. You know, your you know family comes from Cuba. You know, my my crew, we've we've lived within about twenty miles for about one hundred and fifty years. You know, I mean, we just we just don't venture very far. But I so I'm always I'm fascinated when I hear stories of families that, you know, tend to migrate more than, you know, than mine. I just think that's so interesting to me, you know? Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an odd thing in that, um, 
I'll just speak really candidly here. I think sure. if if politics were such that my father and my uncle, who they were really close, if they could have gone back, they would have gone back. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it's really funny when I meet people and they're like, oh, you're Cuban. I, what do you, first of all, what are you doing in Minnesota? Secondly, why don't you live <laughs> in Miami? Right. Like those are the first two yeah. um, hurdles to get over. But um, so it's if you have a minute, like basically oh, please. going back. So my dad was the first one in um, our family to like get out of Cuba. So um, he was a pretty good baseball player and he signed a minor league deal with the Pittsburgh Pirates and um, kind of came into the States and got hurt like immediately. So this is late 50s. Okay. And they kind of were like, hey, you know, we'd like you to go um, play in this Mexican league. And, you know, he's a teenager at the time. And wow. he's like, Mex- what? Are you kidding? Like, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was playing in a, the highest level in Cuba, and you want me to go play in Mexico now? Like, no way. So he stubbornly goes back to Cuba. Oh, wow. So... And the time he was gone, his younger brother had left Cuba, right? So, mm-hmm. but his younger brother was with was then called the Washington Senators, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so, as my dad goes back, the revolution pops off, and now he can't mm-hmm. like really deny the fact that his country is changing right before his eyes, and he wants to be a part of it. Um, and it's a hell of a story in in and of itself, but. His younger brother has now kind of started to climb up the ranks with the Washington Senators who become the Minnesota Twins. So when then my uncle goes to Minnesota and the Twins have three or four Cuban players at the time and um, by act of some political help, like a few of the people who are related to some of the players on the twins get to leave Cuba. My dad included, my grandfather included. So um, they just kind of, and so my mom's sister was married to another guy who was on the twins. So then my mom came over and yeah. So due to the, the Washington senators leaving the DC area and relocating to Minneapolis, um, that's how my family ends up in Minneapolis. And <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we used to go to Florida a lot and um, we would kind of be like, this is fun. Why don't we live here? And my mom and dad were like, it's better. <laughs> it's better for you to grow up in suburban Minneapolis than it is for you to grow up in Hialeah, which <laughs> no dig on Hialeah, but um, looking back is like certainly true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, that's so, incredible. yeah. And, and like, it was now, like I might've been absolutely missed by the baseball gene, but I was completely bit <laughs> by my dad took up golf later in life and um, you couldn't ask for a better city, Jay, like yeah. literally uh, you could not it. ask for a better city than, than the Minneapolis area. So I was really lucky in that regard. 
So, so paint me the Minneapolis golf scene picture. What, what's yeah. it? What's it like there? So, at the low end, um, you have kind of what I grew up in, which are municipal courses that um, are extremely available, plentiful. There's a lot of options. And so I grew up in a town called Bloomington, which um, is like 80,000 people. And Mm -hmm. we had um, an 18 hole golf course and two nine hole par three courses. And um, the bordering city had a wonderful 18 hole course, full driving range, par three course, one of the better cheeseburgers available. And mm. um, so that place was called Rich Acres. And then the, the club that I kind of grew up playing at in Bloomington was called Dwan and then the Highland Par 3. So that's kind of where I kind of would play. And there was a program through the Bloomington Park and Rec that if you could demonstrate some talent, like – you know, you could hit six balls in the air in a row and, you, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of knew your way around a golf course. You could play at Dwan for free, provided you got there before seven in the morning. Hmm. And it was a par 68. It's like 5,300 yards. So, you know, you'd be like 14 and you'd shoot 78. And you'd be like, I'm turning pro. Like, I must, <laughs> I must be really good at this game. You know, like, so it's, it was kind of this perfect storm of a city that understood that, if you meet kids um, with a, you know, a compelling argument to go play golf, they'll go play golf. And um, it was lovely. You know, we would play quite a bit. I think most of my friends played golf. Um, nobody really played seriously. There was no like AJGA. There was no um, like the Junior World Optimist was like the big tournament we'd try to qualify for. Uh, yeah. once a year but like for the most part it was you know the the course had a junior team we'd play in the junior league but uh pretty loose a lot of fun a lot of life lessons and then you know my dad would take me around to play um you know some of the other courses in the area but when I was really young I would kind of go along with him and um hmm. so if I could you know most of the times would be like um, the municipal courses in Minneapolis are good. They're not, there's nothing great, you know. Um, when you get to St. Paul, then you get some great golf courses um, on the municipal side. And, you know, it's, it's not that big of an area. We're talking like a 20-minute drive. But, um, yeah, it was fun to grow up in that area. And because Minneapolis was such a critical city to the growth of the country because of, you know, Pillsbury and the river and, um, you know, the fact that all of that flour and grain largely fed America, um, all of that Mm -hmm. money built clubs like Woodhill, like Somerset, like Interlochen, like Minicata, like Minneapolis Golf Club, which is obscenely good now. And um, the club where I was um, an assistant at for years was a club called Oak Ridge uh, Country Club, which was a 
not a lot of people know about it because not many play due to the fact that it's like the Jewish club in town, but it's, mm. it's astonishing how good that course is now versus when I worked there. And when I worked there, I thought it was pretty incredible, like daily play golf mm. course. So if you're a person of means, um, the, the private club options in the Twin Cities are stunning. And, you know, I haven't even brought up Town and Country Club, which is this. It's, it's founded in 1888, so that'll tell you something. But it's wow. where I largely learned, I would say, 65% of what I know about golf. I learned working in the bag room around mm. um, some really incredible people, to include Bill Larson, who's still um, – I don't know if you follow Bill Larson on Twitter, but – um, the work he's done at Town and Country Club uh, with the support of that membership, it's, it's pretty incredible. And hmm. um, yeah, then you got White Bear Yacht Club, but um, the new clubs, you know, Windsong is supposed to be incredible, but nobody will invite me. Uh, Spring Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Spring Hill is stunning. It's a, it's, it's a Fazio golf club that I've gotten to play a lot over the years and um, you know, for a few years, the Minnesota Gophers held the tournament there. Um, I think John Rahm one, one year, but hmm. so there's a lot of options. And then you have, you know, the high dollar public, right? So like a hundred dollars and up, you got a few of those choices. Um, and when I go back, you know, I try to play as many places as I can and kind of a life dream come true. I just joined Northland country club in Duluth, which yeah, it's cool. a stunning Donald Ross that is um, – um, it's tantalizing and treacherous at the same time. And it's just – there's no place. It's a very singular golf experience. And um, I cannot wait to get back up to Duluth to play. So, And is it – it's on uh, some water, right? I feel like I saw some images from there. Maybe was it Tron? Was it was Tron? Yeah, there actually, recently? yeah, I was with saying? Tron. We filmed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. Gonna, it both um, of y'all then. You yeah. see some fun video coming out of the out oh, of Kill wonderful. House um, about Northland, and you know, like Rich Rick Shevchik, the author who is a uh, kind of a local Minnesota writer. Um, uh-huh. Part of the deal, and um, Chad Hartman is a. Uh, local radio guy in the twin cities whose legendary father sid hartman you might have seen on sports center last night yeah i just yeah, saw that so sid, yeah. uh passed last night after 100 years so chad chad's wow. also um in the in the in the video and he's a member there as well and um um you know like it's it's stunning it's really a special place and lake superior is the backdrop that you're talking about um mm. I don't know um, of a course that kind of like invades my thought as much as Northland does. There's just a few shots that you want to hit like again and again and again and again and again. Um, so it's something else. That's the kind of place that just in all the golfing landscape that's out there. And you, and you just kind of painted this, you know, picture, right. Of the Minneapolis menagerie. Right. I mean, those are the places that, that, that I just, I can't get enough of those ones that have those moments, those little vignettes that just 
you find yourself dwelling on them constantly. I, I love when you when you find and when you find a place like that, you just you feel like you've just hit the winning lotto ticket or something. You're like, I can't believe I found this. How is this possible? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. Like um, this morning, my my thought was, um, <laughs> it's really funny how this works. But I was just kind of walking down Montana Avenue, which is the street I live on. And there is a kind of a garden project being built and there's kind of a squarish cut of grass. And my mind immediately goes to the fifth green at Northland, which is like a 140 yard hole with somewhat of a squarish clover leaf green with bunkers that are going to get your attention for sure if you're in them. And a, and a green mm-hmm. that requires like tarot reading abilities almost, right? <laughs> and so this morning when I'm thinking is like I'm imagining the back pin and do I like, do I gas the nine iron? Do I one hop the eight iron? You know what I mean? Like I'm playing like four shots. Oh, yeah. This pin and it's like, that's the kind of place it is. Like it's not, um, it's not going to leave you alone when you walk away from it. I'll put it that way. I was listening to uh, the latest edition of the Golfer's Journal podcast earlier, and Solly was on talking about the piece he did in the new uh, issue about the uh, traveling bag, you know, from the refuge. And he he framed it, I thought, beautifully. He said something along the lines of, "You know, there's there's two kinds of golfers. There's the the, the people who just you know casually play from time to time, and then there's the kind who." You know, if you're walking, you know, downtown somewhere, you're thinking, can I rip an eight iron around sure. this you know, yeah. building? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's the golf tragic, right? I mean, I'm the same way. I, I, see, I see golf literally everywhere I go. I, I mean, I was walking in the park this morning. This beautiful downtown park. It's called Cascades Park. Got some, you know, mid-rise uh, apartments and hotels going in and around. It's kind of our little, you know, nouveau downtown place it's it's really beautiful really cool and i'm just sitting there and i'm looking across this pond i'm like god look at that that is a par three just waiting sure. to happen and i and i get I, i'm like that everywhere constantly yeah i saw that and i was like boy you know he's been following me like that's that's exactly it um whether you're you know in sh- downtown chicago downtown tallahassee walking into a stadium like how many times have i sat in a stadium and been like you know it's crazy to me that we just go nuts when barry bonds hit that home run but that's like a seven iron you know that's like a stock eight iron or something but and then like i try to like like scale my life against golf right and people are like well how long is it going to take me to get to r&d and i'm like it's driver six iron from here and they're like what are you talking about i'm like look (laughs) <laughs> walk for two minutes that way and you'll be there you know no you're exactly right i mean i i i, I had a meeting uh, uh i don't know about two weeks ago and the guy's office was it's just on the other side of my neighborhood and um i i got there and you know he said oh you um where do you he's like where do you live and i was like ah probably a you know Par five that's just out of reach and yeah. from here, you know. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me funny. I was like, "Don't worry about it." I, I, <laughs> about six hundred yards. Well, you know? <laughs> you know what's fascinating though is that um, I learned that 
in Minneapolis, you talk about how far you are. And in Los Angeles, you talk about how long it takes to get there. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. So like, um, oh, you're two miles from, you know, the White Castle. Okay, great. Um, it's it's going to take you 10 minutes to get to White Castle if we had White Castle here, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, distance is one thing that, that's always kind of a fun way to kind of decipher where you're at, listening to people talk about it. But oh, yeah. no, I did see what Solly wrote and I, I think he's dead on. Um, and he's, I have to tell you, I think, what what a passionate guy Solly is, like like a definition yeah. of someone who fully comes, loves comes what he through. does. Yeah, it's really fun to watch him do yeah. his thing. Yeah, it. Um, I was listening to it, and you can always tell whether or not someone is um, trying too hard. You know yeah. what I mean? And 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 you know, with him and with all really you know, all the guys over there, they. It just you just get it immediately that they're just in their element, and the camera you know they got cameras rolling, they got microphones on, but the element is is just theirs, um, and I think that's why it, you know it resonates. I was on a another conversation earlier, and uh, the subject of another person came up, and the person's take was, yeah, they're just you can just tell that they're they're out of their element. right, no, absolutely. <laughs> I was yeah. like, yeah, you can. Uh, and, and it's, there's something about golfers too, that particularly if you're of that brand, like we were talking about, you know, where you just, you're just obsessed, completely obsessed with the game. You can, you can smell that on folks, you know, when they, when they walk in and they're kind of, I don't know, I like to use the word posing, but you oh, know, there, it's, you it's, can, it's, that, from a mile away, from a mile away. Yeah. Um, and my, I, I'm sure when you were in the pro shop, no, you, could, <laughs> you could always see him come honestly, in the door. Honestly, like my dad used to kind of. How can I put it? Um, he didn't play for nothing, right? I'll put it that way. And yeah. I kind of yeah. learned how to scope people out, like by fifth grade, let's say, fifth or sixth grade. And so yep. I can kind of look at a golf bag and tell you a lot about I mean, a lot about a person. And I, it, it's kind of, I would have assumed by now that that'd be a really common thing for people to pick up on. But like, you know, if for example, a guy comes up to the tee and he's got like a trusty rusty Cobra wedge and he, and he wants to play for 10 bucks a hole, you should think about that for a bit. Cause that, yeah. that guy's uh -huh. not a novice, right? Like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. You know, but um, my favorite Jay is when you're in a lobby and your nervous tick is to try practice your one piece takeaway, like in the mirror of the building, <laughs> you know, like it was, it, it was, yeah. I used to work in aviation and, um, JetBlue is, JetBlue is an incredible company, first of all, but they had offices in Manhattan on, um, in Long Island city, I should say. And so they shared an office with, I believe it was MetLife. And um, so you would kind of sit in this lobby and like, you know, hey, I'm here to see XYZ from JetBlue or, you know, and then the people at the desk would say, you know, please have a seat or you can just kind of wait over here. And every now and then, you know, they had these lovely full length mirrors. You'd see people kind of working on their on their positions and on their backswing and on their setup. And I'm like, <laughs> I get it. I get that person. I know their mind. I know what they're thinking. 
And I should mention something about how strong his grip is, but I'm not going to. Right. But yeah, we're a certain breed, aren't we? No, oh, yeah, there's, there's no question. It's, um, but you know, it's part of the conversation. Another one of the conversations I was having earlier today was, you know, there's, there's also, um, different ways of looking at that. I mean, I think there are people who, um, who that's, it's their downfall. There's also people that, that the game is, I mean, I, and I put myself in this category, but it's an element of my own personal salvation. I mean, I, I would, I don't know what I would do without it. I would I'd lose my mind. I really would. Yeah. Um, the, it's always interested me to see the number of people who are addicts that come into golf. So they break, mm-hmm. they break out of yeah. alcoholism and they come into golf and, you know, sometimes it's yeah. like they become triathletes, but, um, <laughs> you know, they find another addiction, right? They find another way to yeah. get that dopamine in their system. And in many cases, they get really good at the game because they have no problem chipping and putting for two hours after work because it's feeding their addiction, Right. And so, um, and I can tell you from having gone through some pretty dark moments in my life, I was really glad to have the ability to fall into a driving range for a couple hours rather than go to a Mm -hmm. bar or a casino, right? Like it's the healthiest of addictions, I would say. Um, but an addiction nonetheless, I mean, we're junkies when it comes down to it. And, um, Uh, yeah. We're we're very blessed to have that. I, I I think that's, I think you're spot on. I I mean I've always thought I had a bit of an addictive personality. I've I've you know been fortunate never to have it. Um, no, I mean turn into anything terribly detrimental. But I've but I've but I have had those days where you know you wake up and you go okay, fellow, you better you know let's let's back up a couple of steps here. And and you know in the golf course is the place where you go to. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a big believer. We all have you know, we all have certain amounts of energy, and energy gets used for um, you know a lot of different things, good and bad. And you have some people, particularly I think you know, kind of our our breed here, you have to have places to expel that energy in a constructive way. And for me, that's that's golf. It's always been golf, you know. Um, I go there when I'm sad. I go there when I'm happy. I go there when I'm angry. Um, you know, whatever the sort of, whatever the, the high spike of an, of emotion, like I, I need to get there because that's where I kind of, you know, iron it out. And, um, it's a big, it's a big, big part of it. You know, it's funny that when I heard you say that, I hear you talking about the physical act of playing, walking, hitting balls, making shots. What I want to thank you for is, you know, I read your piece on Pasatiempo. And when I, when I read that, mm. I was at a place where um, I was starting to use golf to fuel a lot of my creativity. And other, and, you know, like it'd be nighttime and I would be like, okay, here I am worrying about money, worrying about my daughter's school, worrying about work, worrying about all, all these other things that I probably should not be worrying about right now, but I'll find a way to worry about it. 
and funneling that energy into, you know what? I wonder if I can do some research on, you know, Tillinghast and write an interesting piece about him or some of his work or his upbringing or whatever. So, you know, we can, we can read books about golf. We can play golf. We can, um, you know, imagine golf, but like it gives in so many different ways, you know, like Alex Shuffler, like the creator of the Sunday bag. Amazing. Yeah. Right. Like, um, and mm-hmm. it's fun that people can kind of start these little cottage industries and, and be like, Hey, you know, I play golf and I'm passionate about walking and here's a bag that attaches to a sheep. If you have one, you know, like that's, <laughs> that happens. And I, yeah. I think it's incredible. Well, well, and there's something about golf, um, that is highly attractive to eccentric personalities. And I, you know, I don't know if I share this at every dinner party I ever go to, but I, I can get bored with people pretty quickly. You know what I mean? I, I feel like that sounds bad, but you know, it's like I thrive around interesting people, people with layers, um, people with, you know, dynamic personalities, and there's a big spectrum of that. I mean, I, there, that, that, you know, people fall on all kinds of corners there, but I find that, you know, one thing that's amazing about golf to me. And one of the things that I love the most about it is I get to spend inordinate amounts of time with extraordinarily interesting people. Um, and I don't really know any other, you know, you don't, you're not going to get that at the gym. You're not going to get that, you know, um, I don't know what else, where else you you know people go and whatever they do, but I, I, I just find that to be uh, like we were saying, it's yeah, very addictive. And it's also very embracing in that um, mm-hmm. you can go to a museum and you can go look at you know Pollock works, or you can go look at. Mondrian's or you can go look at Warhol or you can go look at Basquiat. Like you can go to museums and kind of experience that, right? You can stand there and look at it, Mm -hmm. but you can go and actually like feel and live that art form in a different way in golf. That um, is an incredible gift that I think maybe 3% of the golf public really understands like, the gift of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I'll, I I'll totally in, uh, agree with that. You know, we've all been here, but you're, you're sitting at the airport and here comes the guy sitting next to you. And, and, you know, you've got your Ohio Valley Inn hat on or whatever. Right. And, Oh, I've been there. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and it starts and you kind of know right away, whether the person is kind of like the bag tag collector yep. or, like a real junkie, right? Like I'll just call it what it is. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. To, and and the, the, the biggest giveaway in Minneapolis is like when people when you tell people, Yeah, I'm originally from Minneapolis, they're like, Oh, have you played Hazeltine? <laughs> and you're like, Yeah, yeah, I have. You know, yeah. and, yep. and great sure, it's nice, it's fine, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. but then you get the weirdos, right? <laughs> that are like, Have you been to Somerset? Yep. 
And I'm like, yeah, I have. Like, you're not yeah. going to believe it, right? It's a bit of a time warp. Or, um, you know, it's fun to run into people that are at that kind of um, exposure to the game, that, that, that appreciate it that way, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, and I think you definitely are. And I've, I've long followed your work and, 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 and certainly enjoyed it. So thank you for all you've done. And congrats, man! You're a bestseller. You're well, an Amazon I, bestseller. That's that's huge. Yeah, it's been it's been fun, man. I I well, first of all, I appreciate that. I mean, I it's interesting, right? I mean, when when you talk about getting to that level of golf, and I that summation, like with the airport scenario, is so perfect. Um, you see someone come walking to you with a certain you know logo or something, and there's just this little bit of hope. You go, hmm they might be a little like me. And what you find too is, I mean, it, or what you know, I guess, is that it takes a lot of time and effort to get to that level too. Cause you, cause you got to put, you know, there's reading involved. There's, <laughs> there's listening involved. There's, there's, there's travel involved, involved, right? I mean, there's it's a, absolutely luck involved. Oh, I mean, like, totally. so one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life is Andy Johnson, <laughs> Friday, Andy Johnson said something about, Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing here, but like the cool kids at his high school were into golf architecture, which I, yeah, I mean, I literally started laughing, like imagining what's that high school like? <laughs> like, what are you kidding? Yeah, right. Like, do you guys all listen to Craftworks yeah. or what? I don't, I don't know, but that certainly <laughs> didn't go over at my school, you know. And um, yeah, but I think yeah. you know, like having the luck to work. I could have gotten a part-time job a lot of places, right? But I worked in the bag room at Town and Country Club, you know, and it works for some yeah. great old pros that were like, look, yeah, Hazel seems nice. And if, if you work really hard for a couple of weeks, you could play there. Or if you work really, really hard, we'll make the call and get you up to Northland or White Bear Yacht Club or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, here's why, like, here's why it matters. And like, having the luck yeah. of um, being around people like, like Gramps, right? Like, like, yeah. you know, how yeah. big of it, everyone needs everyone a Everyone needs a guy. Yeah. So you know? I've, I've been incredibly yeah. lucky and I think you have to be lucky. Um, and, you know, digressing to Alex Schreffler, the creator of the Sunday bag, like it's incredible what, he's learned in a short period of time coming from a guy who didn't even go, you know, he's a wrestler. Right. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll get into golf. Next thing you know, it's made a bag that's in Iceland, right? You're like deep. he's, he's, yeah, he's into it. Right. And, um, I think it, it, you just got to have a certain bit of luck for that to happen in your life. Um, cause 100%. there's a lot of people that might look at, people who are at a level where they're have, you know, some exacting principles that they're going to call on to, to define golf. And that looks really snobbish and it's really off putting. Um, but if you don't know the lens that that person looks through and how they got there, then you're making a mistake, right? To, to not see it through their, mm-hmm. their eyes and, you know, they likely can also see things better through your eyes. That's just brilliantly well said. 
you know, and you know, you've got a good way with words yourself. Um, I, um, I've enjoyed, I feel like I'm, I've seen a little, a little bit more of it lately, which is wonderful. Um, I've enjoyed some of the things you've written. You talk about, you, know, you had that great piece that was in on golf.com about you know, race and golf. And you kind of got to, to some of that about, you know, the, um, maybe we would call it the infrastructure of the game and the, and the change caused by, you know, golf carts and getting rid of caddy programs and what that did. I mean, that eliminates those guides, right. That eliminates another entry point into, you know, understanding the game at a deep level. And when you, you know, to me, I think, you know, I was reading like, um, you know, Will Bardwell did that piece the other day about sort of like what's next after this latest, you know, greatest golf boom. Um, and I think, you know, the thing we're still missing and you spoke to this well in that piece was we're still missing the fact that the, the great entry points have deteriorated. So a lot of people that come into the game, they come in at a surface level and they stay at a surface level. And, you know, we've been fortunate, right? I mean, in, you know, maybe in a broader sense, you talk about Andy, I was tweeting the other day about, about them. I felt like, you know, when I discovered his podcast, you know, kind of in the earlier days, right. I mean, I felt like I was getting a master's level education in golf course architecture and I said, you still do. And that was like this key to unlocking this whole another level of the game. I mean, my appreciation, for, I've always been a you know golf junkie, but my appreciation for the elements of the game just skyrocketed in the last few years as he's been so much more Intel available. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, but you still need that, that person or that group that can kind of maybe sense that you're looking for more and then find a, a way to, um, you know, introduce you into the world a little bit more. If that it makes does. Sense. And I think, um, Specific to that challenge that, um, you know, one of the things that really kind of has been um, kind of a misguided and poorly executed focal point of the PGA of America has been like, I mean, I could go on, grow the game and what it's really about for a while, which is Mm -hmm. job creation, but we don't want to talk about job creation for members of the PGA. We want to talk about the growth of golf. So, like people don't quite get that when you get a fleet of carts and it provides revenue to a club, boy, that's really hard to pull it back to say like, you know what, let's just be purists and walk. Yeah. The problem is, is like you're going to be walking in a parking lot for some condos because the club won't be open if they lose that revenue. Right. So there's this incredible, Mm -hmm. like delicate balance that we see golf um, going through and this, there's a few booms, right? Like you have, you have the tiger bubble, yep. right? Like, here we go. Everyone's going to play golf. And people find out immediately, holy shit, this game's hard. Like he makes it look really easy, but that starter set that they picked up at Target for 99 bucks, like it's in the garage after one round because the game is difficult, you know? And by the way, it's never been easier, yeah. but it's hard. And people right around the year 2000 start to find this out. Boy, it's difficult. Um, then, you know, you have the housing boom, which created a, a, 
pretty big jump in the number of courses. I don't know exactly. I'm sure the NGF can get you some propaganda. I'm sorry, information on those numbers. And now you have this kind of mini bubble, the COVID bump. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to get a tea time. At least it looks that way online. You can walk up and, yeah. and um, sometimes have some luck. Um, I think it's all about the people that are in the top 10% and maybe top 20% are in situations where they're not essential workers. So they can be wildly productive from 7 a.m. to 10.30, go play, come back home, wrap up whatever other work they have to do. And that can be a Wednesday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. What I'm seeing is T-sheets are full. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone that's there is spending money. You know, sure, they'll pay for the round, mm-hmm. but um, that might be about it. Um, driving ranges are doing great. I don't. I don't see this carrying on, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, um, I don't see the game growing, sadly. I see a lot of kids being put into the game um, and brought to the game and the carrot at the end of the stick in far too many cases to include the first tee, to include other groups. The, the carrot at the end of the stick is scholarships, right? Like, oh, you can get a scholarship. Yeah. Whereas I think the big, the big win is really relationship, not scholarship. And so um, Bingo. when you get people out, like for a caddy, for example, to be able to, you know, uh, I mean, we had a kid named Sergio when I was a town and country and his parents were from El Salvador and um, very hesitant to trust people outside of their insulated Salvadoran community, right? But Sergio would come Mm -hmm. and Sergio would work hard and Sergio would pick the range and Sergio would caddy. And you would see Sergio spending four hours with some of the key people that make St. Paul go. You know, the heads heads of industry of St. Paul are with Mm. Sergio for four hours. And Sergio is teaching them about what it's like to grow up in San Salvador they are teaching Sergio about farm life as a child in Waseca, Minnesota, and how that, you know, got them to agriculture school. And then the next thing you know, they're running a food company in St. Paul, right? So the relationship goes both ways in that people learn about the caddy's world and the caddy's life or the bagroom kid's world or his life. The caddy or the bagroom kids learn about that side of life, and they're both honored Right. And I think sometimes we come into organizations and we think, all right, these are our values. These are our principles. Let's hand these off to the next generation or these underserved kids over here read brown and black kids. Mm -hmm. Let's show them our principles and our way of life. And once they get that, all good. Well, the reality is they have a different set of values. Like, you know, their dads and their granddads, if they have them around, shake hands differently than you do. They yeah. might not tuck their shirt in like you do. And it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just these are cultural differences. And the give and take 
is the important thing there, right? Um, and in that, there is a common ground. And in time, that common ground grows to be the game, right? Like, mm -hmm. at first, you might be talking about how pathetic the Vikings have been. But later, <laughs> right? But like later, that grows into, you know what? Mr. Smith, I think the 10th hole is the, is the hardest hole out here. You know what, yeah. Sergio? I think it's the 12th, right? And let me tell you mm -hmm. why, right? So um, relationship is the key to the whole thing. And it is so on multiple levels, I think. I, that's just wonderfully well put. I, I, my dad said something to me one time. I never will forget it. It's, and it's, you know, it, it's, there's elements of what you were talking about where this, this story, my own story art comes through. Right? I mean, you know, when I was you know, 12, right. You know, I was going every, like every other 12 year old who can you know hit a decent drive. I, I was going to be on the PGA tour. You know, my uncle was on the tour. So I had this sort of background and, you know, that fantasy got embedded pretty early. And my dad said something to me. I was, I was in high school and you know, it was grinding and playing and chasing that dream. And, um, he said, look, son, he said, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with you. Maybe you'll play in college. Maybe you'll play after who knows. And he goes, but I will tell you this. Um, I've, I've, I've watched you develop an ability to build relationships through golf. And that will take you further than anything you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and, and he has been just dead on. I mean, it was absolutely correct. I mean, the strongest relationships that I have um, are, are made through the game. And, and, you know, you, there's something about it. There's something so compelling about it that when you when you go deeper into the game alongside others, you just develop a bond um, or maybe a bond is revealed. Um, that's unlike anything else I've ever seen. And, and it, and it can be used for a lot of good things. Um, and I think, you know, to your point about things like, you know, first tee and all this other grow the game stuff, it's almost like, it's almost like those efforts and they're not bad efforts. You know, I, 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 there's things there that are certainly good, but it's almost like they, it's like, a um, it's like kind of a corporate washed over version of, of things that we actually know to be true. And, um, and I feel like if, 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 if we could just, um, uh, get back to, I'm a, I'm a big believer in you know, systems, right? You know, the systems that you put in place generate the results. Um, and golf had some systems that were better at generating lifelong players. And a lot of those things are gone now. And because of that, the game as a whole, I think, suffers a little bit. Or maybe maybe more people just don't get to that next level um, because they never did find the right guy. I don't know. Yeah, well, and like, you know, there's a lot of people with golf clubs, but there's not a lot of golfers. Yes. And, that gets and like, I think um, if you want to talk about systems, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but mm -hmm. so – I talked a little bit earlier about how in Bloomington, Minnesota, like if mm -hmm. you were good enough, your parents would just drop you off, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. And um, then somebody else's station wagon would probably come and you jump in with two buddies and that's how you'd get home. Right. Um, so there was a time 
and it's not that hard, but you would systematically leave children at the door of the pro shop at 7, 15 a.m. And then they'd be home at four or whatever. Yep. So from a societal perspective, like that's just not done anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the scariest moments for me in the golf business was um, – so as I was saying, I worked for John Miller and his mm-hmm. wife, Lisa Masters, was running the first tees for the Three Rivers Park District. And she said, lads, you're going to run the Highland Ski Hill. It was a ski hill, but it kind of doubled as a driving range in the summer. <laughs> so um, I would do the clinics and the camps and then I would do private lessons. And then sometimes I'd do lessons for kids. And this mom called and she's like, hey, we have a son and he's really good. And... Um, you know, he's probably going to be a scholarship golfer and, um, can you, you know, can we set up like every Tuesday and Thursday at like four 30 for the rest of the summer? And I was like, well, why don't we meet? You know, the kid's five years old or whatever, right? I'm like, why don't we meet? So the kid can't break a window with a golf ball for starters. He doesn't mm-hmm. know how to hold a club and, um, the mom is like, no, he's really good. And you're just going to have to teach him. And I was like, oh my. And then she pulls out like his day planner, right? And the kid's got photography. He's five. He's got photography. Oh, dear. He's got um, baseball coach, whatever the hell that is. He's got me <laughs> in there. And so like we try to optimize and do the best thing for this generation when the best thing is to let go and let yep. the game kind of do the work itself, that's, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but instead that that's just not, you know, like all the fear mongering of like, you just can't leave your kid at the course all day. Like I remember, um, so I got into a little trouble at Dwan golf club and I couldn't go, <laughs> I couldn't go back there for a summer. Yeah. And so I would go to this place called Doll Green Golf Club in Chaska, which was awesome. And Dan Olson's parents would bring us at like six in the morning and Dan's dad would play and Dan and I would go jump in with whoever. And then sometimes my mom and dad would pick us up around like five. So we'd spend like the whole day there. And there was one day when my dad pulled up and like, there was our Cutlass Cruiser wagon. And like, I had to motion my dad over and I was like, Hey, I need like $30. <laughs> He's like, what, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, Dan and I played with these guys over here and I lost like 30 bucks. I lost like 40, but I had 10. And, um, you know, so your kid might pick up some bad habits, but, um, all in all, like 99% of it's going to be positive. If we had, a system where you could just leave a kid at a golf course with 10 bucks for the whole day. Yep. That's, <clears throat> that's how I grew up. I, I mean, my parents have always said the golf course, is the best babysitter they ever had. And, you know, from sun up to sundown, that's what we did. Um, you know, I was very fortunate, you know, you had this little nine hole small town environment. So, you know, you, they felt, you know, what's the worst that can happen. Right. I mean, I might, you know, crash my bike, you know, because I drank too many Dr. Peppers and got hyped up and hit a tree, you know, <laughs> but, um, but it was a wonderful, 
wonderful way to grow up. And I sat there and I can remember talking to these, you know, these, these men and I, you, you why I watched them, right. I mean, you, you, I was just very observant. I was always watching how they interacted with each other. And, and I just, I just fell in love with it and, and I still am and I can't get enough of it. And, um, and I can't get enough of conversations like these. Um, but, um, my, my wife just, uh, walked around the corner and gave me the uh, tap on the watch signal. The look, uh, yeah. which, which, yeah, which means it's time to uh, go pick my daughter up from daycare. But uh, I tell you, man, Laz, we're going to do this again. I just, I have just enjoyed this conversation immensely. My friend, this has been wonderful. And I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Likewise. I thought it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I, I look forward to your daily musings and, you know, all the best of luck with the nine virtues. I think that's just a lovely piece. And, you know, I know Gramps is proud. I'm sure your father's proud and he nailed it. Like you're touching a lot of lives through golf, Jay. So keep it up, man. Great job. Well, thanks, my man. I appreciate that. It mean, really means a lot. And, and same to you, man. I hope, I hope you keep seeing the, uh, the last bylines um come in and uh, i think you're on to something with that i can tell a lot about someone by their golf bag that's a uh you might need to yeah. uh, put pen to paper on that <laughs> yeah one. yeah yeah look for the november golfers journal there's a there's <laughs> there's a stunner uh in the masters uh um edition coming out oh fantastic! yeah there I can't is an wait. absolute stunner so i think you'll really enjoy it okay all right well, now i'm excited i love it all right, Mel, listen, hey, thanks again, man. Can't tell you enough how much I enjoyed this conversation. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely be doing these again soon. And hopefully um, our paths will inter intersect uh, maybe uh, a few hours away from here uh, very soon. Yeah, my, my, you know, I'm putting that out in the universe. Let's hope that happens. I love it. Yeah, I'm, 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 my motivation has increased after this chat. Excellent. <laughs> awesome, Jay. All right, buddy. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.